time. So we're in the book of Hebrews, and we're going to look at a passage here. And, uh, and I've, I've said this before, I'll say it again. He is going to repeat some themes that we've already gone over. And he's going to repeat some themes that we've gone over a couple times already. And one thing that that needs to do, it helps us understand they needed this really badly. And he had to keep repeating it to hammer it into them. But it also tells me something else. We need this really badly. We need sometimes to just, just get down to the foundation and what the basics are in, uh, in, in our biblical walk with God as we try to follow Jesus Christ, our rabbi, and be good disciples. So let me read to you. This is from Hebrews chapter 9. You can turn there in your Bible or you, you can, uh, your phone, or it's okay if you use your phone for that. Uh, and now that football season is over, I have noticed phone use has dropped tremendously in our, uh, in our, our church. So don't know what that means. <laughs> That's a lie. Okay, so uh, verse 15. For this reason, Christ is the mediator of a new covenant, that those who are called may receive the promised eternal inheritance. Now that he has died as a ransom to set them free from the sins committed under the first covenant. In the case of a will, it is necessary to prove the, the death of the one who made it because a will is in force only when somebody has died. It never takes effect while one, the one who has made it is living. This is why even the first covenant was not put into effect without blood. When Moses had proclaimed every command of the law to all the people, he took the blood of calves together with water, scarlet wool, and branches of hyssop, and sprinkled the scroll in all the people. And he said, this is the blood of the covenant which God has commanded you to keep. In the same way, he sprinkled with the blood both the tabernacle and everything used in its ceremonies. In fact, the law requires that nearly everything be cleansed with blood, and without the shedding of blood, there is no forgiveness. So much blood here. We're going to address that. Verse 23, it was necessary then for the copies of the heavenly things to be purified with these sacrifices, but the heavenly things themselves were with, but the heavenly things themselves with better sacrifices than these. For Christ did not enter a sanctuary made with human hands that was only a copy of the true one. He entered heaven itself, now to appear for us in God's presence. Nor did he enter into heaven to offer himself again and again, the way the high priest enters the most holy place every year with blood that is not his own. Otherwise, Christ would have had to suffer many times since the creation of the world. But he has appeared once for all at the culmination of the ages to do away with sin by the sacrifice of himself. Just as people are destined to die once and after that to face judgment, so Christ was sacrificed once to take away the sins of many, and he will appear a second time not to bear sin, but to bring salvation to those who are waiting for him. Ah, there you go. Teaching the word of God at times can be difficult because it is written to people in a certain time, in a certain culture, dealing with certain things that may be quite different from ours. And so what we do is we, we learn what it means and then we adapt as we think about how, what it means then to us. And in the book of Hebrews, here we go. It's repetitive, often repetitive, because they were steeped in the Old Testament. It was their life. It permeated every waking moment. And often it became repetition for them that meant little, but it was comfortable. It gave them a sameness when everything was changing around them. You know, I don't usually get up here and recommend movies or TV shows or anything like that. 
But uh, if you haven't watched the series The Chosen, I would recommend it. I think it's very good. Um, I know, you know, they have to fill in a whole lot of stuff, and, and they do so as best they can in a way that honors the Word of God. But what I love, because I'm a nerd that way, I love all the little things they get right. All the little things. If you watch that series, you will see them every time they walk into a doorframe, touch it and kiss their fingers. Why? Because that was an incredibly common thing back then that is not so common anymore in, in Jewish tradition. And the reason why they did that was there was a little tiny box on the door called a mezuzah. And in that little tiny box was a little piece of paper, a little piece of parchment that said, Here, O Israel, the Lord your God is one. You will love the Lord your God with all your heart. And, and it has just those short phrases, the Shema, that is so important to Israelites. And so they believed, and, and one in the Mishnah, it says this, through the mezuzah, every time a person enters or leaves his home, he will encounter the unity of God and remember his love for God. Thus he will awaken from his sleep and recognize his obsession with the vanity of the times. And he will know that there's nothing that lasts eternally besides the knowledge of the creator of this world. See, this is a great idea. Touch the doorframe where the mezuzah is and remind yourself the Lord your God is one. It's a great idea. But what happened to it? It became repetition, right? It became a custom. It became something that after a while didn't mean very much to them. Why? Because it's a habit. No thought to the meaning. In fact, if you read some of the later writings, it has become a good luck charm. One of the later rabbis around the 1600s wrote, if you forget to touch it, you, bad things will happen to you. But if you remember to touch it and kiss your fingers, good things will happen to you. That's what it evolved into. And we know that. That happens today. Why does almost every baseball player, when they walk up to the plate, go like that, you know? They just they do it fast, super fast. Why? Why? Because they're saying, God, help me get a hit. Like God is up, up, up in heaven going, oh, Joseph's up. I got to go. He's, he's 0 for 7. This is going to be hard, but he's going to get it. You know, no. It just becomes a good luck charm. Why do so many people wear crosses around there? And I'm not, don't, as soon as, you, you know, as soon as I say that, I said it one time in another place when I was teaching, and I just saw these, all these people go, okay. But here's the thing. We forget what the cross means. It just becomes a piece of jewelry. And I'm not saying it's wrong. I'm just telling you, this is what happens. And this is what happened with them. Things become habits without thinking. And in the Jewish tradition, all these things that had such great meaning just became habits, just became things people did without thinking. And we can do this just like them. That's something for us to remember. And this is why the author of Hebrews is teaching them. He's saying those old ways were just a mere shadow of the new. They were an imperfect foretaste of what is coming. They pointed to the ultimate covenant, to the ultimate high priest, to the ultimate offering that was coming once for all. And all of these things, hero Israel, the Lord, you know, all of these things are pointing, pointing, pointing to Jesus. And we're going to see more of that in this passage. And it's not always easy. I understand that. I was talking to somebody the other week, and um, 
they just said, Hebrews is, is kind of tough to follow. And I said, I understand, it is tough to follow. You think you're getting it? And this person said, this is what I'm getting. Jesus is the most important person in the universe. And I'm like, you got it. You got it. Jesus is better. Jesus is better. There's nothing like Jesus. And so the writer of the book of Hebrews is saying, don't go back to those old ways. He's saying to some that haven't, haven't come to Christ, he's saying those old ways, they were just a shadow of what's coming. The sacrifices, the priesthood, all the rituals that went with that, they all point to Jesus. And so to do that, what does the writer have to do? He has to prove to them that Jesus is superior. He's superior. His covenant is better than the old covenant. His priesthood is better than the Aaronic priesthood. He must prove to them that Christ's sacrifice was better than any sacrifice that had ever been offered before. And so he's saying for us, as followers of Jesus Christ, Christ is superior to anything else. Nothing compares to Jesus. Nothing compares to you. I heard that song, uh, Sinead O'Connor, Nothing Compares to You, a few weeks ago, and I can't get it out of my head because I just keep saying, nothing compares to you, Jesus I know she's singing about an old boyfriend. I mean, I know that, but it didn't work out well, did it, right? But when it comes to, nothing compares to Jesus. I don't know why I even told you that, but it just popped in my head and I can't control that things. Okay, we're gonna talk about today, we're gonna talk about the demands of the law. What is demanded? We're gonna see four things that are demanded and there, there has to be an answer to from Hebrews chapter nine, verses 15 to 28. First of all, sin demands a ransom. Sin demands a ransom. That's here in verse 15. For, the, the reason, for this reason, Christ is the mediator of a new covenant, that those who are called may receive the promised eternal inheritance now that he has died as a ransom to set them free from the sins committed under the past covenant. So, so when we look at this verse, one of the things, I, I, you know, this is always important for us to understand context. What is he saying here? Why is he saying what he's saying? And, and, and what's the context around it? What's the reason for these four things that we're going to see demanded? And the reason goes back to verse 14. I don't have it up there for you. But in verse 14, he's saying he's doing all this so that we can glorify God in this universe. We, together with God, can, can accomplish this great revolution that is encompassing the universe because he wants to use us for some reason, because he loves us so much. He wants to use us. And that's the, for this reason. For this reason, Christ is the mediator of a new covenant. A mediator is a go-between. Jesus, by dying for us, became the mediator between God and humanity. You know, this kind of references things we've talked about in the past. In the past, um, we talked about Jesus when he called his disciples, and one of the ones he called was Nathaniel. And uh, he, he told Nathaniel, you know, I saw what you were doing under that tree, and Nathaniel was so shocked that Jesus had seen something that he was sure he had done in private. He said, you must be the Christ. And Jesus said, you think that's, you think that's something? He says, I'm telling you, this is what you're going to see. I'm going to become the bridge, the way between heaven and earth. There, there is, we, we talked about this the other week, there, there is the ideal, which we wish everything was like, the perfect. And then there's the real world that we live in. And Jesus broke down from the ideal through the wall that separates it to the real. And he became the bridge. He says, I'm that bridge. What is he talking about? Well, Nathaniel would have gone right away to Jacob. When Jacob saw angels ascending and descending, 
Jesus said, that was me they were ascending. I'm the one who has created. That's why when he says to Thomas, I don't know where you're going. He says, Thomas, I'm the way. I'm the way. I'm the bridge that you have to walk on to get to the other side. It, you can't do it without me. He's a mediator. The key thought here, his death brought about a, the promised inheritance to those who are called, it says. He says it's to set them free from the sins that were committed under the first covenant. Now remember that what was going on. They would, they would sacrifice in the Old Testament, in the, in the temple, in the tabernacle. They would sacrifice, and the sins would be covered. They weren't gone. They were just covered. And he says he, he died to set them free from those sins, to give them a promised inheritance. Now, this, this word, um, epigalia, is the Greek word there. It's, it's, it's agalia, which means a, a promise or a declaration. And he puts epi on the front of it so that it strengthens it, so that what it meant, came to mean to them was a declaration that something was true, coupled with taking on the duty of carrying it out so that it will be true. God says, I'm promising you that you have this inheritance. And he, with the epi, he's saying, not only am I promising you have this inheritance, I'm going to take it upon myself to make sure that that happens. You can trust me on this one. And see, these are those Old Testament believers who it says were called. And I love this, and I, I worry sometimes. I don't want to go too much into the Greek because it makes it sound like, oh, I can't read the Bible and just know what's being said. But sometimes there's beauty and depth in the language that it was originally written in. The word calls in the perfect tense in a verb. What the perfect tense means is there was an action that was completed in the past, but the effects of that action are going on to this very day. What is he saying? I called them in the past. Their sins were just covered, but I promised them I would take care of it. I sent Jesus. Jesus died for all those sins to take care of them as I promised. The death of Christ gathered up all sinners from the beginning of time to the end of time who put their faith in him. All in one fell swoop. I like sound effects, so, you know, I'm always thinking if I was making a something big like that. Skadoosh, maybe, I don't know. All right? So in the Old Testament, they were covered. Now they're taken care of. Um, sometimes one of my grandkids, I play hide-and-seek. He was younger at that time. I played hide-and-seek with little Lyndon, and he would say, Pops, okay, I'm going to hide. You try to find me. And I would say, okay, you go ahead and hide. And you know, little kids, you know how that is. So he takes a blanket sits in the chair and puts it over himself. So I'm like, I have one of the dumbest grandkids in the world, I think. Um, but so I play along and I'm like, oh my goodness, where is Lyndon? I can't find him. Is he under the table? No, you know, you know that whole dumb routine you go, I feel silly doing it in front of you. And at one point I said, I don't know. I don't know where Lyndon is. Where's Lyndon? And he, on this little voice I hear, he's gone. I'm standing like three feet from him. He's not here, you know, he's gone. And I said, oh, he's gone. I'm gonna have to go look outside. I'm gonna have to go out in the backyard. I'm gonna have to go back in the kitchen and make coffee and sit down and drink some while I look for him. And he goes, he's back, he's back. 
keep looking, you know, because he's afraid I'm going to actually do that. Those sins, they were just covered. But now they're gone. He came for that. He came for those who believed with their faith in what God would do and how God would, would take care of their sins, and they believed it. And Jesus came and fulfilled it. Why? Because when God made the promise, he said, just to make sure, I will take personal responsibility in that promise coming to, to being, coming true, I guess maybe, to being. So sometimes I get this, and you may hear this from somebody else. How were people saved in the Old Testament? They were saved by faith in God. They knew that in God who promised that Christ would come to bear their sins. And today people are saved by faith in God, knowing that Jesus Christ bore their sins in the past. For the Old Testament, it was the one Jesus coming in the future. For us, it happened in the past. One fell swoop from beginning to end of time. Jesus died for all, gathered them all up. And he ransomed us, bought us out of the slavery of sin. So sin demands a ransom. But here's the other thing. A will demands death. A will demands a death. He says in verse 16, in the case of a will, it is necessary to prove the death of the one who made it because a will is, because a will is in force only when somebody has died. It never takes effect while the one who made it is living. All right? See, here's the thing. A will is not a bargain between two people. You know, a person writes out their will and they say, you know, this is going to you, this is going to you, whatever, however much it is. This is going to you. Then that person dies. Then the executor takes the will and says, you get this much. The person who's getting that much can't go, you know, though, I was thinking I'd want the house. Well, it's not in a will. That's the absolute law. I mean, this is it. You can't change it. You can't change it. God has promised an eternal inheritance. And it depends on the death of the one who made it in order for it to be received. A will can't operate unless someone dies. Jesus had to die to release the legacy of God to mankind. That's what had to happen. I read a story. Um, I, love the his, I love history stuff, you know, so I'm reading that kind of stuff all the time. I look, at, look it up online, stuff like that. And I read a story of a guy uh, not long after... Uh, been a while after, after World War II, but in, in World War II, he, he went into uh, the British Army with his friend, the, the Scottish Highlander Guards, and, and uh, they fought in, in um, North Africa. I'm probably going into more detail than he's on this. They, and then they fought in Europe, like four years of these two guys. They, just, they were friends before, and they became best friends. Um, they both admitted on more than one occasion one of them had saved the other's life. You know, they just had this incredible bond that really people, oftentimes only people who have seen combat can understand. But they had this incredible bond, and they, and, and they came back, and, and uh, the one friend who tells the story, he was a Christian, and his other friend, you know, he says, looking back, he's, when he wrote this, you know, I, I, you can see he, his friend had P, PTSD, but nobody knew what PTSD was back then, right? And so, and, and so he hit the bottle hard, and, and he, he struggled and, and finally, he, and he would come, and he was, sometimes he would help him sober up, you know, and he'd patch up the wounds from fights he'd get into and stuff like that. And he was still, he was just loving him, telling him he need, how much he needs Jesus. And his friend was just lost and just struggling. And one, one night in a drunken brawl, he killed a man. 
in, in a, it was just, it was a horrific thing. And uh, so they got arrested, went to court, and they said, you, they pronounced the death penalty on him. He said, you're, you're going to die for this. Now it takes a while, you know how that works, it takes a while for the, and so this friend kept going to him while he was in prison, going to him while he was in prison, and, and, asked, and finally, and led him to the Lord, and he was just so excited, he led him to the Lord, and the night before the execution, his buddy said, please, please come see me. You know, this is my, this is, this is what I want. And so he came and his buddy wrote out a will and said, here, I, I have a house and, and, and some land. I don't have much, but I wanted to go to you. You're, you're, you're my only brother. You're the only family I have in this world. And so, you know, he, he, he gave him the will, you know, and they talked and they embraced. And so in the middle of the night, because this man had become a Christian and, and seemed to have changed so drastically the, the last four or five years he was in prison, the uh, Scottish, uh, they, they pardoned him. He, he, he didn't have to die. He was going to stay in prison the rest of his, but he didn't have to die. So, so he was pardoned in that. And uh, I don't know what the word for that, state or execution or whatever. And so the next day, he gets, they let him have a phone. He calls his friend and says, you don't get that stuff. Because I'm not dead yet. But when I do, you will, you'll get it. See, what, what is it? If you have a will, you don't get the stuff. That sounds so crass, doesn't it? You don't get the stuff till, you, till the person dies. That's what has to happen. And so we, this, a will demands a death. And eternal life is bequeathed, in a sense, to all believers. This is God's, Last will and testament. This is what he says. This is what you'll get. So sin demands a ransom. A will demands a death. Forgiveness demands blood. Verse 18, but this is why even the first covenant was not put into effect without blood. Now, this is very close to the previous. All these points are so close to each other that what is happening is the writer of Hebrews is just reframing similar things just a little differently. He's just coming at them from a little different angle to emphasize to them how important this is. But you know, the thing I think about is, and as we continue to read this, and I mentioned it while I was reading, it's so bloody. You know, um, I read a a sermon a while back by C.H. Spurgeon, um, famous uh, preacher, Scottish preacher. And and he was known for being kind of in your face and hard-nosed. And so that's why when I read this one, it surprised me because he said, all this blood, it's kind of offensive. It's, it offends our modern sensibilities. And he said, it offends me. It shocks me. The blood and the sacrifices is horrible. It's terrible to think about. Now, this is, always remember this. Most of those sacrifices were eaten. They ate them. It was food but they went through the sacrifice as a reminder of their sins and how their sins needed to be covered with a sprinkling of blood. But then they had steak or lamb chops or whatever. I mean, um, I read a thing one time where they said, evidently, when they came up on some certain celebrations, Jerusalem smelled delicious because they're cooking steaks. Right? If you go by a good steakhouse, they vent that jank out into the air because they don't want you to pass by without your mouth watering and go, I'm more hungry than I thought I was. 
right? That's, that's it. So, so just remember that. But here's the thing. It, it is rough, all this blood. Do you know what happens at a slaughterhouse? You do, right? I mean, you do. You see, what we've done is we've removed the blood from our sight so that we don't feel bad about it. That's what happens. I mean, every time you eat meat, an animal died for that. And we're eating way more than they did. So just remember, when you start going, oh, this blood, it all offends me, it all offends me. I said, we, we kind of have blood on our hands too, just, just, just so we understand that. And I'm not saying don't eat meat. I'm not saying any of that. I'm just saying kind of get a realistic vision of what's going on here. And because it is difficult, but that is exactly the point. God is shocking us on purpose. He was shocking them on purpose. He wanted them to step back, take a breath, understand. He wanted them to see. These, this, your sins are in, in, in what we're talking about here. He wanted them to see. They're horrific. He wanted them to see. You have hatred. You have murder in your hearts. Your sins are horrific. So that when you see this blood and you go, oh, man, you transfer that all oh, man to you. You say, wow, I am bad. I have sinned. There's things that are terrible that I would possibly do. Maybe just if I could get away with it. And so I want you to see, they, they were struck by this even as much as we were, as we are. It, it wasn't like they were like, oh, blood's nothing. No, they knew. They understood. And uh, in fact, maybe in some ways even more, because, you know, battles in those days were bloody barbaric affairs, and you just stood face to face and killed each other and stabbed each other. I mean, it was all like that. Okay, that's enough of that. So, well, no, let's go a little bit more. Here we go. Ready? And I've talked, we talked about this this summer, but sometimes these things bear repeating, right? When God comes to Abraham in Genesis 15, he says, I'm going to make a covenant with you. He says, we're going to make a covenant, right? You and me. So let's, let's talk about what that is. What is, what is this covenant and, and, and this idea of how blood is involved? When God says, we're going to make a covenant, he says, this is what I want you to do. I want you to kill these animals. I want you to lay them in a ditch like this. Just cut them and lay the two huge pieces like this so it looks something like that. And the blood runs down the ditch. Now it says, it says then that God uh, used heavenly anesthesia on, on Abraham. It says God put him to sleep. Why? Because a great, it says a great dread and fear came upon him. Why would he be so afraid of entering into a covenant with God? Well, because a covenant demands that it, you say, don't break this, and if you do, there'll be severe consequences. And Abraham's already put two and two together. If I'm making a covenant with God, who's the most likely one to break the covenant? Boing, right? He, him. He knows it. And so what happens when you make a covenant? For the greater walks through before the lesser. So it says God walked through first. And this is, this is what happens. 
you walk through the blood so that it gets on your feet and on the hem of your garment. And you get to the top past those animals and you say, you may do to me what we did to these animals if I break the covenant. And I'm sure Abraham's going, easy for you to say. You're God. Stink. You know, this is not. So then, now it's Abraham's turn to walk through the covenant, greater than lesser. And what happens? God has put him to sleep. He can't walk through the covenant. And God walks through and gets more blood on his feet and gets more blood on the hem of his garment. And God says, you may do to me what we did to these animals if you break the covenant. God said, I'll be the one who bears the penalty of breaking the covenant. He went through two times. Once, you know, it says, it mentions a light and then once as a furnace, and that has all kinds of meaning with it. I'm not gonna get into all that, but the whole point is God went through twice. He went through Abraham's turn to go through. So he said, Abraham, I know you're gonna break the covenant. And because of you breaking the covenant, I will die. What? Already, what? What does that say? Hey, here comes Jesus. He's talking about Jesus. In Genesis 15, he's talking about Jesus. So think about this. If you have this sin problem, it says it requires a death. And if you have a will that needs to be resolved, it requires a death. Jesus says he is the offering who dies, and he is the high priest who offers the offering. He dies, but he's alive. Jesus says, I've made the will, but when I die, I'm going to be the executor of the will. He's dead and he's alive. Jesus says, I'm going to die to be your mediator, and I'm going to be your mediator. I'm your mediator, it says it right there, right now in front of God. Do you see? All of that, what does it point to? A resurrection. It all points to a resurrection. All this stuff that they're being taught in the Old Testament, all this stuff that we're being taught right now demands a resurrection. Otherwise, it's null and void. It's worthless. It all points to a resurrection. God was planting all of those seeds all the way back, well, all the way back in Genesis 3, but all the way back in Genesis 15, planting those seeds of what's coming. This means from the very beginning, this was God's plan. Verse 19, when Moses had proclaimed every command of the law to all the people, he took the blood of calves, ooh, here we go, together with water, scarlet wool, and branches of hyssop, and sprinkled the scroll, and all of the people. He said, this is the blood of the covenant, which God has commanded you to keep. And you remember, we looked back on that a few weeks ago when he was talking about this, and they all said, we will. Every bit of it, 613 commandments, check, right? And then God's like, well, you just broke one. You just lied because you can't, and you know you can't. And so here in verse 21, he's, he's saying, you know, he's talking about what Moses has done. He's saying, look, uh, verse 19, I mean, he says, so look at Moses, the great Moses, the Moses they revered. He's saying, he's reminding them, but Jesus is greater. Jesus is greater. And he says, Moses... Um, sprinkled that blood. They all said, we'll keep the law. Now, interesting there, it's mixed with water. So evidently it wasn't a tremendous amount of blood because, you know, if you've ever seen how that, you can, a little bit of blood mixed can go a long ways. It's mixed with water. Why? Because blood is a symbol. Blood is the symbol of a death. 
that blood, that blood that he sprinkled, that's, that's not, it's a symbol that something died and, and uh, a, a difficult, especially with Jesus, a difficult death. Now remember, with a covenant, you can refuse it. There are those in the Israelite nation who refused the covenant. We see it because the sin of unbelief keeps coming up. They don't believe God. They don't want to obey him. They're not, they're, they're, they don't want to be involved. And he says, in the same way he sprinkled the blood, uh, he sprinkled with the blood both the tabernacle and everything used in its ceremonies. In fact, the law requires that nearly everything be cleansed with blood. And without the shedding of blood, there is no forgiveness. He's, giving, he's telling them they're there. The shedding of blood is the key there. Now, interesting point here, because it says without, um, it talks about the cleansing. It's an interesting point here because God, who always has a heart for the least of these, when he commanded the, the, uh, what they would have to sacrifice, they would say, he would say, you have to have to sacrifice, you know, a bull or maybe a goat or, you know, a lamb, or if you just can't, a pigeon, the very, the very lowest. You could, you could sacrifice a pigeon. If you've ever lived in a major city, you will be all in favor of the sacrifice of pigeons because it's their, you know, New York City, they're horrific. They're everywhere. They're just every, and they poop and all that stuff. And so you'd be for it. But God looks and he says, wait, there's still going to be some people, the poorest of the poor, and the pigeon is beyond their means. And he said, so if you can't afford it, a handful of flour, just bring a handful of flour and offer it to me. And this, I just, you just see in there God's grace in the midst of that. And I think about how lightly I can take the forgiveness of God's, forgiveness of God. Sometimes, you know, I'm studying God's word and I study the cost, you know, looking through Hebrews, that's been a huge thing, the cost. Last week, we, we, we looked at Jesus in the Garden of Gethsemane where suddenly he's staring into the mouth of hell and, and the, the words used are such graphics words. He's shocked to his core. He loses control. It's like he can't control his... He, he just is totally devastated by what he sees is coming for him. And I study that and I think it hits me how glibly I can take it, how cheaply I can consider it, the infinite cost to God for my sins. And it strikes me that sometimes I, I sin so easily. And I think in the back of my mind, knowing that it's forgiven, like I have a get-out-of-jail-free card or something. And it, it's, it just strikes me how I can be that way this abuse of the sweet grace of God. And forgiveness isn't God just looking down and saying, oh, it's all right. I like you a lot and just let it, I'll just let it go. We'll just let this one go. No. Forgiveness is the costliest thing in the universe. And without bloodshed, there's no forgiveness of sins. If you are forgiven, it's because someone has died. And this is the truth God wants us to grasp. It was necessary then for the copies of the heavenly things to be purified with these sacrifices, but the heavenly things themselves with better sacrifices than these. Now he's saying, uh, reiterating, all, that, all the Old Testament, all of those things, they're a shadow of what's to come. 
And so we have a new covenant that's better. Here is this better. Jesus is the better sacrifice. The old, it just covered them. The new, it removes them. It removes them. And the death of Jesus Christ purchased our forgiveness. He recognized that this is what needed to be done. He offered his blood. He revealed God's love and mercy and forgiveness for all who believe. Um, I love this story uh, from the New Testament. It's from Luke chapter 18. I think it's a beautiful illustration of this. You know, we, we got two people who are coming to pray. One is humble. The other is applying for a vacancy in the Trinity. He thinks he's so righteous. You know, he, he got this tax collector and you got this Pharisee. And it's, I'm just going to read Luke 18, verse 9. To some who were confident in their own righteousness and looked down on everyone else. Boy, oh boy, just stop there for a second. Confident in their own righteousness. I know I'm a good person. And they looked down on everyone else. And this is where Christians can really struggle. Because we look down. We can look. It's easy to look down on people. It's easy to look down on those people and those people, the other. The people who are not like me. The people who I disagree with. It's easy to look down on them. I feel like in, our, in the church today, there's this bitterness. We can't, God's, God is not for that. He did not save us for that, to be bitter and angry at other people. Okay, that's another sermon. So, but to those who are confident in their own righteousness and look down on everyone else. In other words, he's saying, these are really bad things for you. Jesus told this parable. Two men went up to the temple to pray, one a Pharisee and the other a tax collector. The Pharisee stood off by himself because he was too holy to be near all those other people. And he prayed, God, I thank you that I am not like other people. Robbers, evildoers, adulterers. God, I think I'm not like that. that, that. So he lists robbers, evildoers, adulterers, those really bad people. And he goes, wait, I'm going to go right to the bottom of the barrel. Or even like that tax collector. Thank you, God. I'm not that one. That's the worst. That's the worst. I fast twice a week, and I give a tenth of all I get. Me, me, me. Look at me. Look how great I am. See, this, and this, this is, to me, is something that is so easy to struggle with. Because he points out someone, you know, he says, this tax collector. Now, tax collectors were traitors to the Jewish nation. They were Jews who had turned to serve Rome and were soaking their own people, taking money from their own people. So they were the worst. It wasn't, a, it wasn't a, like being a tax collector nowadays is a fine, upstanding um, job. Everyone loves tax collectors. Some of you are laughing, and I don't even know why. And if you work for the IRS and you're listening, there's nothing wrong with that. Please don't take this. We're just a little. Okay. I'm going to get a nasty email. I can feel it now coming. So he says, look, this is the worst of the worst to me. And, and, I'm, and the tax collector stood at a distance. He wouldn't even look up to heaven. He beat his breast and said, God, have mercy on me, a sinner. And, and the word there, the mercy means to be propitiated. God, cover my sins. I, I have mercy on me. Have mercy on me because I recognize I'm a sinner. And Jesus said, I tell you, this man rather than the other 
went home justified before God, for all those who exalt themselves will be humbled and those who humble themselves will be exalted. And you know what? The first thing I do when I study something like that, I go, that Pharisee, what a jerk. I mean, what a dope. He didn't get it. I'm glad I get it. Welcome to Bob the Pharisee, right? Not Bob the tomato, Bob the Pharisee. I'm going to be on VeggieTales soon that way. See, and, and, and this tax collector is basically saying, God, I, went, I, I recognize I'm a sinner. I recognize that's what's needed here at the temple to understand that I am a sinner. He's a Jewish man putting himself under the goat's blood sprinkled on the mercy seat. Release to me your love and mercy. He didn't deny his sin. He didn't deny his guilt. He understood this is what the sacrifice is for. And he didn't offer anything up that he did to God. He knew he couldn't. He was, and it says, he was justified. By his confession of sin and his faith in God, he was justified. He walked away justified. This, to me, is that beautiful illustration of what, how, this is how it worked in the Old Testament. His sins weren't gone, though. They were just being held, held in abeyance. And, and held, um, Jesus said, just put it on credit. I'm going to take care of it all in one day. Put it on my account. Verse 24, for Christ did not enter a sanctuary made with human hands that was only a copy of the true when he entered heaven itself, now to appear for us in God's presence. Nor did he enter heaven to offer himself again and again, the way the high priest enters the most holy place every year with the blood that is not his own. I just, I just, getting close, I want to just say this. I love this. In, at the end of verse 24, he appears for us in God's presence right now. God, Jesus is in heaven by the throne at the right hand of God as our mediator, as my mediator. And uh, Jesus says, God, I'm here on Bob's behalf. I'm here on Bob's behalf. I represent him. So when you see that screw up, don't look at that. Look at my righteousness that I have accomplished and imputed to him. I've given it to him. He's as righteous as I am. And God says, Yes, he is. That's amazing. Right now, Jesus Christ is appearing before God for you. If you're a follower of Jesus Christ, he's there and he's saying, Bob, I'm here. I'm here for, just put your name in. God, I'm here for you. I'm here for, I'm here for him. So he's saying that. He's saying this, this, this is so powerful. He's there for us. Otherwise, Christ would have had to suffer many times since the creation of the world, but he has appeared once for all for the culmination of all the ages to do away with sin by the sacrifice of himself. He's just, it's just his way of saying. He, he gathered him up from the beginning to the end and took care of all the sins at one point. That is why it was so horrific for him on the night before he was slain, on the night before he died. Why was it so horrific? Because it was all of them. All those ones that had been kept in abeyance, all those ones that had been covered, they came rushing in. All the ones in the future, they came rushing in. Jesus saw them all. And he said, is there any other way? And he said it three times. Is there any other way? But he kept saying, but I'm here I'm doing your will. Your will, not mine. Your will, not mine. 
Aren't you glad he did that? <laughs> uh, because, I don't know, you ever think about that? What if you were God? You know, and I'd be like, oh, okay, I'll, okay I'll, I'll die for that one. No, not that one. I'll die with that. Nope, 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 nope. Wait, just no to most of those. You know, it just would be, I just, no. And Jesus is yes, 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 yes. In Jesus, it is always yes. And so Jesus did one and done. I mean, he just did it. And he says, in the end of verse 26, he says, the culmination of the ages is to do away with sin by the sacrifice of himself. And that word there, sin, is secular. Singular. That word is singular. He, in other words, what he's saying is it's talking about the whole principle, the whole power of sin is being taken care of. Not just every individual sin, the whole concept of sin is being dealt with at the cross. And then we can still struggle with it, but... The consequences of sin have been permanently dealt with. And when he comes, and he talks about this, when he comes at the end, it's ushering in this new age where it's gone completely. Gone completely. Uh, my wife and I went away for a few days, um, and uh, we went up in the mountains, and we stayed in the mountains, and we just did fun stuff, you know. We went tubing, I went skiing, and we just did some stuff. We did, but we did some walking, too. And sometimes when we walk together, every once in a while stop if it's like a really beautiful spot. There's one really beautiful spot there where you get to the mountain peak, and you just see, you just see for a couple hundred miles this valley roll out in front of you, this vista that is beautiful when it's, when it's right. And we were sitting there, and, and my wife was saying, you know, I kind of, these are the kind of, this reminds me, this makes me think of heaven. It's going to be like this, only better. And I'm like, hmm. Holy mackerel, that's great. That's just great. He's coming to do that for us. Sin demands a ransom. A will demands a death. Forgiveness demands blood. Judgment demands a substitute. Verse 27. Just as people are destined to die once and after that to face judgment, so Christ was sacrificed once to take away the sins of many, and he will appear a second time not to bear sin, but to bring salvation to all those who are waiting for him. And, and I, I, let me just close with this. Um, after that night of Gethsemane, the next day, there were three crosses prepared by the Romans for three criminals. And on two of those crosses, criminals were hung. The third cross was for a man named Barabbas, who was guilty of treason against the Roman. He took up arms against the Romans. He must have killed a Roman or something to that effect. He was, so to the Romans, that was the worst thing you could do. So they reserved the worst punishment for that kind of thing, hanging on a cross. But Barabbas never made it. You know the story. Barabbas never made it to the cross. You see, sentence was passed on Barabbas. He was found guilty by the Romans. And he never got to the cross because somebody took his place. And on that middle cross that day, it was not Barabbas, but it was the sinless, perfect Son of God, Jesus Christ. Barabbas went free, but he didn't go free because he was innocent. He went free because somebody took his place. This is important for us to understand because if you can say today, you can stand at the foot of the cross and you can look up at that cross and you can say, that was prepared for me. I deserve to die there, but I go free because somebody else hangs in my place. Then you understand 
what Jesus Christ did for you. You understand what the writer of Hebrews is trying to get across to these Jewish, some Christians, some not Christians, but getting across to these Jewish, probably brethren, of what Jesus did. He took our place. Judgment demands a substitute. These four things, sin demands a ransom, a will demands a death, forgiveness demands blood, judgment demands a substitute. All point us, and this is, you know, over and over what he's saying. It's Jesus, Jesus, Jesus. It's all about Jesus. Nothing else compares. He's telling us there's a lot of things you can do with your life in this world, but nothing you can do compares with living for Jesus Christ. Nothing even comes close to living for Jesus Christ. If what he's saying is true, to live for anything other than Jesus is insanity. It's crazy. It's stupid. Now, sometimes I'm stupid, so I'm willing to own that also. I don't want you to feel like I'm picking on anybody, but it is. It's ridiculous. It's the the craziest thing you could think of. There's a God who made the universe, and he wants wants to be intimately associated with me, and I want to find other things to do with my time. That's crazy. That's just crazy. So on that, let's pray. God, thank you. Thank you for how you love us. We don't deserve it. We admit that freely, just, just, just like that man in the, in, in, the, in the temple. We only rely on your mercy and your grace, your forgiveness that you give so freely, that it is here now for us full and free. It was earned by Jesus and gifted to us. And so we give you the praise that he hung on that cross that we should have hung on. And so now Jesus... As we consider these things, help us to allow them to change us, to change our direction, to change our desires, to change our focus, so that we would walk in a manner that would honor and glorify you. And that as as a part of the body of Christ, all of us here would walk in a manner that would cause other people to say, behold, how they love one another. Lord, help us to do that. And so in doing that, we reflect Jesus to others. We thank you for the privilege of being called daughters and sons of the living God. And because of what Jesus did, we pray and thank you now. Amen.